Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is where business is done with my friend Thibaut Surlet. How's it going, Thibaut? It's going great. Please introduce yourself and your company. So the Adrianople Group is a business intelligence firm that really focuses special economic zones and private cities. And we do all sorts of things. We have the world's first map of every single export processing zone and foreign trade zone in the world. And yeah, that's, that's what we do. And, and say your name, I probably mispronounced it. Uh, so where are you at today? I'm currently in uh, the canton of St. Gallen in Switzerland near the border with the small country of Liechtenstein. Very nice, very nice. So when we were talking, I could see the uh, gondolas going up the hill. So he's right near the ski resort. Not, not a bad place to be, Thibaut. So tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started this company. Well, I, I grew up in the Silicon Valley, Valley uh, to a French family. I... Uh, Dropped out of George Mason University after a while to, uh, I spent a few years working on various Bitcoin companies. And in 2016, 2017, I left the Bitcoin space to start a think tank that studied special economic zones. And one thing led to another. And eventually I left the nonprofit space to start a uh, for-profit research company because I saw that the demand was there. And what we do is that we work with investors who want to create, hey, I want to build a new logistics hub. I want to build a new real estate uh, development. And it's going to have this legally autonomous you know, jurisdiction. How do I do that? And we try to find the answer to that question. Very interesting. So you said you worked in Bitcoin. I thought you start working in Bitcoin, you make like a billion dollars and you just quit, right? <laughs> well, what was very interesting is that because I knew all of the early Bitcoin people and I later on started a nonprofit, I had sort of a built-in network of people who would be uh, interested in being in, in venture capitalists uh, supporting this type of project. And what's fascinating is that the cryptocurrency space is very highly regulated. And cryptocurrency actually is one of the sectors, which most people might not know, but a lot of the mining servers are all hosted inside of these special economic zones. So in addition to physical logistics, a lot of internet and uh, digital logistics is also located out in these jurisdictions. Yep. So guys, I know probably some of you are listening to the podcast and going, hey, Joe, this, is, this isn't exactly logistics or supply chain. Or technology, but it, it truly is because the way the way the world is set up, if we have tariffs, we have taxes, enormous amount of stuff that we move is within special economic zones. That could be a free trade zone. It could be private cities. There's all sorts of these. And I think it's probably the majority. Am I right to say that, Tebow? The majority of stuff moves through, especially complex supply chains, have to move through a special economic Yeah, so zones. there were different studies to try to estimate what percentage of all manufactured goods in the world pass through a special economic zone in their lifetime. The low end estimate is the International Labor Organization's 2007 estimate of about 50%. And the high end estimate is somewhere around 70%. And that's the World Bank's 2009 estimate. So 
old figures, the percent has probably increased. You go down Walmart, right? And you're just picking the random plastic junk that they have off the shelf. Chances are that about half the stuff in your shopping cart has passed through a zone in its life cycle, and another quarter or so is actually built inside of a special economic zone. Right. You know, and, and this this happened to me just before the pandemic. I was working with a company in Europe, and they were asked, I was just advising them. They said, we they sell like a, a consumer product. And they were shipping it to the U.S., and they were also shipping it to Canada. And they, they were just getting getting started in Canada. They had brought not very much business. Canada being about the tenth, one-tenth the size population-wise, wasn't working out real well. So I said, well, yeah, rather than ship to Canada and the U.S., ship just to the U.S., maybe to a free trade zone. We can ship right from, from the U.S. over there. You have to find a free trade zone to do that. Because otherwise, what they want to do is they want to, for that, there was a tariff coming into the U.S., but not a tariff going into Canada. And it was a weird, weird thing, whereas, like, for whatever reason, Canada said that's no tariff required, but we said there's a tariff required. So you get all sorts of these business decisions happening because of tariffs and taxation. And this is why we have special economic zones. So let's talk about this. So first off, what is a special economic zone? It's an area within a country that has its own rules and regulations totally separate from that of the country that it's based in, or usually separate in one area, like import-export. It can be as mild, relatively speaking, as in some countries, uh, in most countries, hey, goods that enter the zone don't count as entering the country. So you're making, you know, a tire, and I, I don't know, the hubcap is coming from Germany, that doesn't pay a tariff. The, the rubber is coming from the Congo. That doesn't pay a tariff. And the finished tire just pays a tariff when it enters the U.S. market. Or it doesn't pay a tariff if it's shipped to a third-party country. That's the basic export processing zone. On the total other extreme, you have in some countries like Honduras fully privatized legal systems with you know judges run by companies and like complete 100% exemption from all taxes and its own unique labor laws. So you have everything from like little export processing zones, relatively speaking, to entire like breakaway legal systems within these zones. So so talk about the first time we had one of these special economic zones. So we, in terms of humanity, this is a myth, but the Roman Empire had been at war with the Carthaginians for a very long time. And the Roman manpower was depleted. Their fleet was sunk. They had no soldiers. And they'd barely been able to defeat Carthage. And what happens is that a new enemy pops up. And it's the Greek city-state of Rhodes. And the Greek city-state of Rhodes has this massive trade empire, this navy. And Rome has just won this war, is depleted They know they cannot beat Rhodes militarily, but they find an exploit that's going to work. They find out that the entire government of Rhodes is funded by a 2.5% tariff that is levied at the port of Rhodes, the very same port where the Colossus of Rhodes uh, allegedly stood. And the Romans create the world's first well-documented special economic zone on the island of Delos that has a 0% tariff, a complete free trade zone. And as a result, 
within five uh, within five or six years, the whole government of Rhodes is collapsing because they have no more money left because the Romans have outcompeted them. Right. So that's the first one in history. What's the first one here? And why did it, when I say here, I mean the United States. What is the first one? Why did we get the first one here? The beginning of the modern program, but what's very interesting is that it goes back centuries in the U.S. But in terms of the modern program, there was the Smoot-Hawley Tariff in, in, uh, in, in 1932, created by President Hoover to supposedly shorten the Great Depression. And the idea was that foreign competition, cheap foreign manufacturing was driving jobs away from the U.S., and that because of this, there was not enough demand for American manufactured products. So they would compete by making American products artificially, sorry, foreign products artificially more expensive with these tariffs. Never heard that one before. But anyways, what what they did is that they, they, they passed these tariffs and it devastated the economy. And all of the manufacturers in the U.S. started complaining because it turns out that American-made often means that the parts still came from overseas, even as early as the 1930s. Right. So the government created the Foreign Trade Zones Act of 1932, which is still in place to this day. The first foreign trade zone became the island of Manhattan. And in the U.S. now there's between three and four hundred. And so the first one was, so th- so this would allow me to bring in parts for certain, for certain uses into, and, and I have to ship into Manhattan? Yes. You, so the way it works in the U.S. is that the goods that enter the zone do not count as having entered U.S. from a customs perspective. So it, you can also bounce the goods from zone to zone. So what you often have is that a lot of the major big ports, like the port of Savannah in Georgia, is a foreign trade zone. But I know that inside Georgia inland, there's some other foreign trade zones for manufacturing. So the goods enter the port, the, part, the, the parts enter the port, they don't pay any tariffs. The parts then go from the port via railroad to the foreign trade zone that's inland. The whole time, there's all sorts of protocols and tracking procedures to make sure that the goods aren't leaked without paying the tariff. And the goods enter the foreign trade zone inland in Georgia. And there there's a factory. Let's say that they make coal mining equipment, right? Well, half of the coal mining equipment goes back to the foreign trade zone and is exported to Germany and it pays a tariff when it enters the EU. The other half is sold to Alabama, a state over. So the other half pays the tariff when it enters U.S. borders. But the key thing is that the goods entering and exiting the foreign trade zone do not count as having exited and entered America. And that's one use case amongst many for special economic zones. So really, this is the way business is done today, because if, if I'm doing business here in the U.S., well, there's all sorts of tariffs. So, so when something wants to come here and, you know, we had the Trump tariffs and that impacted uh, impacted our economy. Usually tariffs are uh, it means we're as consumers going to pay more. But, you know, when I put my logistics and supply chat hat on for a moment, it potentially helps certain segments of the, our economy. So. Most, you said about, if I look at the United States, what percentage of the stuff is made in special economic zones or touched in a special economic zone? I have no idea. I, I actually would be surprised if even the National Association of Foreign Trade Zones, which is the industry association, would know that. So nobody really knows. But it's quite a bit. <laughs> if I had to guess, it's in terms of goods coming overseas into the U.S. And this is purely my imagination based off what I know. If I had to guess, 
it's probably above 70% of all imported goods are passing through SEZs. And of manufactured goods, I'd say it's maybe a fifth of all manufactured goods made in the U.S. So so you got to educate us a little bit. So, so the big category is special economic zones. And we've all heard those. And, I, you know, I, I know here in Detroit area, there was these economic empowerment zones where it was low-income neighborhood where they said, we just want to get some job experience here. And I think they had all sorts of rules that were knocked down to let those those companies work within those areas. So just give us a sense for how many different kind of special economic zones there are and what are their purposes. Yeah. So in, in Detroit, you're referring to the uh, Bill Clinton's empowerment zones from Yeah, so that was like some tax scheme, doesn't really have much to do with SEZs. They got some SEZ professors to like green light it, but it it never really panned out. Rand Paul, I know, wanted to turn Bell Island. Rand Paul was a Republican senator, I believe, from from Kentucky, I think. He he wanted to turn Bell Island in Detroit into a SEZ. It's just Bell Isle. Oh, Bell Isle. <laughs> so that's an island, right? So Bell Isle is owned by Detroit. It's a it's a park. Like I think it's a state park now, but uh, or managed by the state park, but it's owned by the city of Detroit. And it's a big island. You don't have to take a boat to it. You can take it's bridged. So Bell Isle is a beautiful place, and it's kind of if you look at it, it's in the Detroit River between. Canada and the U.S. So I know there's been different talk about what can we do with Belle Isle? Because by the way, when you go, if you went 50 years ago to Belle, um, 100 years ago, 50 years ago to Belle Isle, it's this unbelievable place because there's uh, gardens and it's, first off, it's enormous. Gardens and wildlife areas and trails and fountains. I mean, it was, it was truly beautiful. Fell into disrepair along with Detroit. Well, now they fixed it all back up. I think the state uh, manages it like a state park, but it is owned by Detroit. And But there's been speculation about what to do with it. So talk a little bit about what they were talking about with that. Well, I, I don't really know the details, but I, I remember just hearing through, through the grapevine from people I know who were involved that it was just, they were just role playing. It was just some, some it was just a, a thought experiment. To, to go back to the other question about the different types of special economic zones, what you have are a lot of what are called export processing zones. Sometimes they're called free trade zones. There's some slight differences, but basically these are, as I said, the custom zones. We're entering and exiting these zones uh, doesn't are outside of the custom area. And these export processing zones, they're ubiquitous. If you count the smallest ones, there's over 10,000 worldwide. If you count like little bonded warehouses, it's impossible really to know how many. And you'll find these in America, in Europe. You'll find these in the Western world. Going a little bit further in terms of like, you know, a little bit further down in terms of how interesting are special economic zones proper. And you find these in emerging markets. And what's fascinating about these zones is that they often offer, at the very least, tax incentives like corporate income tax. Many of them have zero, especially for manufacturing. Manufacturing is still the number one industry. And if you look at countries like the Philippines, if you look at countries like India, the amount of manufacturing that's done in these, it varies, but it's, it's huge. It's huge. I know for sure that in a whole bunch of, uh, of, of, of countries all over the world, the, the figures are above 50 or 60 percent of all manufacturing within those countries being within their SEZ programs. In larger countries, obviously, it tends to be a smaller percentage. And, and the advantage is there's 
probably some t- relief on tariffs and there's maybe a tax incentive within that. So yeah. So these are corporate income. So the very basic is usually corporate income tax or countries that uh, calculate a value added tax where they add that they tax every single stage of production. It's like a sales tax, not just on the finished good, but on every sort of manufacturing process. Uh, usually right. the stages of production of the value-added tax that occur within the special economic zone are not counted. So if you're doing business in an emerging market, you have to ask your lawyer, does the country have special economic zones and how much can you save on taxes? The trade-off is usually the tax rates are lower, but because the tax rates are lower and space is limited in the zone, the rent is higher. So it's really a trade-off where if you're doing business in Colombia, you really have to ask your lawyers about that or if you're doing business in Nigeria or whatever. But then going further, many of these zones offer labor, uh, different labor laws. In some countries, there's very complicated trade union rules that are amended. In other countries, you can't fire people without a trial and a judge court order, some crazy countries. Well, that's amended. Some countries give visas. So these SCZs can issue their own business visas, their own tourist visas, their own long-term work visas separate from the visa system of the country. Going a little bit further, some of one-stop shops where to imagine how many permits you might need to build a factory. You might need a hiring permit from the Department of Labor, a building permit from the municipal government, a business permit from the Department of Commerce. And before you know it, you're dealing with 20 government agencies. A lot of these zones will have a privatized government agency within the zone that has permission to basically act as a middleman and consolidate these 25 agencies. So they streamline that. It's streamlined and privatized, so it's very efficient. Well, what's interesting here in the United States is I know people would talk about red tape, and nobody likes government red tape. We have more and more regulatory rules. And, you know, and I know there's been talk here and there, and I think under Trump there was, I think they had kind of a rule, I don't know if it was actual law or what, but where they said, for every new law that we add or new regulation, we're going to get rid of two or three. But even even with that, in certain businesses, I'm sure if you're in the coal business, there's more and more regulation as we try and kind of push those those industries out, right? Anything that's dirty, we're going to really regulate. And I don't think you're going to get many breaks on that stuff here. But overall scheme of things, the United States isn't the hardest place to do business. This is probably a relatively easy place to do business. Certain parts of the world are known for their regulations right, and their bureaucracy. So this is just a way to cut through the red tape and allow us to do business. But what's interesting to me is how many of these special economic zones are across the world? If you use the most extreme definition, 12,000, if you were to only count zones that would like look like a business park or a city, about five or six thousand. So it's ridiculous amount. I mean, considering how many countries, well, how many countries in the world, three hundred or so, right? So, and there's certain countries that I imagine are so small it wouldn't matter. But for the big manufacturing, so let's just talk about China. When we were prepping, you talked about China's economic zones. How is that impacting what we do here? Yeah. So China special economic zones have had more of an impact on the U.S. economy over the last 50 years than everything Reagan, Bush, the Bushes, Obama, and Trump have done combined, right? And Clinton, you know, uh, so China was a communist country 
in the sense that, you know, Mao Zedong had these ideas, hiring another citizen, hiring, having an employee uh, relationship was punishable by the death sentence in China. Literally, uh, the farming was collectivized and there was huge supply chain bottlenecks. What's very interesting is that during the Great Famine in China, most people don't know this, but they were actually growing more than enough food. Crop yields increased. The reason why people were starving is because there were supply chain bottlenecks where there was so much, there were, there were so few food processing facilities that they had all of this grain rotting away in warehouses, not being able to make enough flowers. The total death toll of all of World War II is about 80 million. The death toll of China's Great Famine is about 50 million. So, you know, the, in terms of the worst things in human history, China's Great Famine is probably second only to World War II. And in 1976, I believe, Mao Zedong dies. He has a stroke and he never wakes up. And what's fascinating is that there was this guy he'd sent out in a gulag called Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping had been sent to a gulag and Mao brought him back for six months to help him manage things. And he had plans that later turned out to have Deng Xiaoping killed. And he's like, I'm going to have him run stuff for six months. I'm going to have him killed. And then Mao is the stroke and dies. So as a result, this guy that Mao had sent off to the gulag finds himself in charge of the Chinese economy. And Deng Xiaoping, he's about four foot ten. He's tiny. And he's one of the most brilliant statespeople of the 20th century. And the reason why is because he had, he inherited people, U.S. presidents always complain about the mess they inherited from their predecessor. Well, the mess he inherited was 50 million dead people and China having the GDP <laughs> per capita of Malawi. That was the input. And the output is like the China with like skyscrapers and, you know, electronic cars we have today. How did he do this? Well, what he wanted to see was he wanted to see where are the countries where there's people with Chinese language and Chinese culture that are doing well. So he goes to British-run Hong Kong. He goes to the small independent country of Singapore. He has people, he doesn't personally go to Taiwan, but he has people sent to Taiwan. And he visits American supermarkets and American factories. He visits the United States. And he realizes, huh, this is, what we're doing is pretty stupid. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. And what he does is that he creates four special economic zones right outside of Hong Kong. And he copies Hong Kong's legal system and puts them in those four zones. Over the In the 1980s, something like 80% of all foreign investment going into China was coming in through those four initial SEZs. The program was a success. Four zones became 15. 15 zones becomes 190 by the mid-1990s, 195 by 1995, something like that. Now there's about 2,500 within China, depending on what you count. And what's crazy, this is the shocker, outside of China, there are between 300 and 500 Chinese special economic zones that are run by Chinese companies that were funded by Chinese banks in countries like Kazakhstan, in countries like Nigeria, in countries like Nicaragua. So not only did China have this huge success with special economic zones, but they're now exporting this success internationally. And what's incredible is that they're building through the Belt and Road the largest network ever of interconnected ports, 
railroads, airports, freeways, and fiber optic cables. And at the hubs, all of the physical hubs along this network of horizontal infrastructure are these overseas Chinese special economic zones. So what's going to happen is that imagine your, you know, what's going to happen is that the, the American companies that find out how to do business in these Chinese SEZs, basically, they're going to have an advantage no matter where in the world their markets are. And the businesses that are trying to do business in emerging markets that are not paying attention to these Chinese SEZs are going to run straight into a brick wall. Interesting, interesting. And I know there's lots of problems in China now, so it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how how all of this uh, plays out. But when you end up with 2,500 special economic zones, it does kind of beg the question, why not just change the laws at the at the top, right? And so I don't have to have a special economic zone. But what you're talking about, those are for manufacturing and for export-import. What other kind of special uh, economic zones would interest would interest people in the logistics and supply chain community? Well, every single possible, with a few exceptions, maybe some very internet things that are just not physical, but every industry that leaves a physical footprint can be found in a zone. And if you were to go out looking, you would find zones that target that industry. In terms of manufacturing, right now, the top manufacturing sectors and SCZs are textiles, automotive and aviation parts, and um, printed circuits that are basically dominated by SEZs. If you were to look at non-manufacturing stuff and non-logistic stuff, tourism, flat-out tourism is becoming a thing. There's a concept, interestingly enough, of quarantine zones. Countries that rely on tourism but are afraid of tourists are taking like all of their historical landmarks and physically quarantining them off with tourists. You have medical tourism zones, which is a very different type of tourism. There are a lot of rich Chinese people going to the Indonesia for healthcare. And I know that there's uh, medical tourism zones in the Caribbean that actually advertise, hey, Americans, your healthcare system is so inefficient and expensive for the cost of waiting for 18 hours in a crappy, you know, place in the U.S. and not get healthcare. You can fly out to the Bahamas and stay in a five-star hotel for two weeks. So, Right. I know that's I know that's uh, with Canada with the long wait times for like certain surgeries, like hip surgeries. A lot of those are now done in India. And I imagine those are special economic zones because one of the things that one of the advantages of not having this socialized health care here is we don't have enormous wait times for specialists. <laughs> you usually get that when with this, the socialized. But again, everybody's got their fair share of their hassles. But these are the reasons these special economic zones are popping up is for these kind of use cases, I'll call them. So here in the U.S., the special economic zones are usually just because I brought in parts or you know components to a subassembly is that the main reason when we were prepping i mentioned this a lot of people would say i'm an automotive guy why are you getting those parts from mexico that is uh we should we should limit our our imports on that but sometimes you'd have a product an automotive assembly where there's a thousand parts 20 percent come from mexico but if we didn't have those 20 percent we wouldn't be competitive financially so what ends up happening is when when somebody says we're going to limit in those imports, you're limiting eighty percent of the eighty uh, percent, and so that that would be an example where, if, especially if I was going to sell it outside the U.S., where I could bring those in without without penalty. Well, one very good non-economic argument for special economic zones 
is that they cause peace and they prevent war. Adam Smith famously wrote, when goods stop crossing borders, soldiers start. And one fascinating use case for SCZs is North Korea. And most people don't realize this, but Pyongyang has special economic zones where private South Korean corporations have their factories. And it turns out that something like 50% of the adult population of Pyongyang actually works for private South Korean corporations in special economic zones. And what's beautiful is that North Korea is probably the most isolated and corrupt and probably, you know, evil country in the world, right? And even North Korea needs to import stuff. Even North Korea needs to do business. And to the extent that they're opening special economic zones, they're opening themselves up to the world. And I think that, you know, for my company, right, we have a number of Venezuelans, some of whom actually still live in Venezuela. We have people from uh, some African countries. I won't mention the name of the country so they don't get in trouble, but who live under dictatorships, right? We have people who live in countries where real, you know, close-mindedness and government oppression. And I think that the, the special economic zones, to them, right, it's more than just, yeah, we're getting economic development, and yeah, we can afford to have, you know, a factory that manages this. To them, it's this light of hope, and it's like, well, maybe one day my country can open up and we can live like Americans or like Europeans. Right. Right. Timo, this is very interesting stuff. Uh, a little arcane. I, when we were prepping, I kept saying, boy, I, I know some people are going to go, what the hell are you talking about today, Joe? But it really is one of those foundational things with foreign trade, world trade is critically important, not only to our lifestyle that we've gotten so used to, but also to peace. You know, if you don't, as you mentioned, if you don't trade with countries, at some point you go to war with them. You know, goods, goods don't cross borders, armies will, as you said. And so these special economic zones, they're just a reality that we all have to get used to. And I will say, I had no idea there were so many. And it seems as if, you know, the majority of the supply chain that we, you know, most of us move move stuff around, pass through a special economic zone. Anyway, final thoughts on this topic before we wrap this up and we tell you, tell us a little more about your company. Yeah, so in terms of special economic zones, there's a lot of people who forget the importance of supply chains and who forget the importance of logistics and they say, oh, that's boring. I, I've heard from people in the industry. I myself am a millennial, right? And I've heard from people, oh man, why can't we find millennials who are interested? And I tell them, what you need to say is that supply chains are the unsung pillars of human civilizations. Do you like not starving. But not only that, but do you like all of the wonderful things? Do you like, you know, surviving healthcare? Do you like, you know, laptops? Do you like cars? Whatever you like, you owe it to supply chains. <laughs> Living indoors, eating every day. I've spoiled myself with exactly, that. <laughs> exactly. And people who attack the fundamentals of supply chains, right? People who, or people, simply people who poo-poo it as a boring and unnecessary industry say, yeah, I want to work for a tech company. They forget that at the end of the day, everybody is just trading with farmers to make them happy. There's a very fascinating story that, that, that I'm going to end on, end with, where there's, it turns out that something like 75% of the world's supply of nitrile gloves was made in four special economic zones, two of which were in Malaysia and two of which were in Thailand. Now, nitrile gloves, those are what doctors use, right? Nitrile gloves, yep. Those are the gloves that the, the doctors use. 
And there's a guy who has gone for a December, January break. He, and he, he, he wakes up one morning. I hear this office. He's the, the factory owner is also the SEZ owner in this case. And he opens his email, his inbox, and he finds 265 billion orders for pair, uh, to, uh, orders for 265 billion pairs of nitrile gloves, which is so much more, you know, than his, his, his capacity limit was. And what's fascinating is that even as the whole world, the whole planet shut down in 2020, all of the special economic zones became quarantine zones. And all of the zones that were making essential goods continued manufacturing despite the shutdown. So, and you, you have examples where in the Philippines, the, they, they created barracks for the workers in the zones. You have examples where in Central America, the zones got special permits to start shipping in all of this medical equipment and have it enter the country without paying any tariffs. So look, it's going to impact your business. If you're doing business, if you're in America, if you're importing and exporting, chances are you're working with a law firm that knows about it. If you're working in emerging markets, you probably should ask your lawyer about it and do some internet research. And I think that if you're just interested on a more philosophical level, that paying attention to SEZs is one of the most important underreported segments of supply chains and logistics. Yeah, that's excellent. And and I know uh, we didn't get into it, but um, you mentioned this, the idea of like even like private cities. And again, this is just a way to encourage and um, get free trade done. And it used to be, it used to be, we just hear about tax havens or, you know, th this person trying to avoid doing the right thing. But more and more, it seems as if this is trying to sidestep maybe overly bureaucratic or maybe overly taxed segments of the economy. Anyway, Thibaut, before you go, tell us a little bit about your company. And and it's called the Adrianople Group, right? Adrianople Group, that's correct. Adrianople. So what is that what does that word mean? Adrianople, very, very good question. It was it's it's a city located nowadays in, in northeastern Turkey, named after Hadrian, who built Hadrian's Wall, built by the Romans. And what's very interesting is that the Roman Empire fell, the Byzantine Empire fell, the Ottoman Empire fell. They all fell because of battles that occurred at the city of Adrianople. And what's very interesting is not only did the empire fall, but whatever came up next would be started by a treaty in Adrianople. So it reflects sort of the changing of eras and the passing of baton from one civilization to the next. In terms of our company, we the most interesting thing is to look up open zone map. We have the world's first map of every single special economic zone in the world. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So if you want to click on it, uh, just send that to me, Tebow, and I'll put it in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I, I recommend everybody goes to open zone map. And if you're an academic or a researcher or even doing something for profit, you can actually use all of the data in the map for free on your project. It's It's completely open. So go on Open Zone Map, and you can actually visually see how special economic zones are changing the world. Yep. And so, who do you guys serve? Who's your Who's your clients? Our clients are investors who want to create new special economic zones. They're the guys who are going out and saying, "Hey, I'm going to go to X Y Z, a country in South America, and we're going to build a private city, and we're going to have homes for five thousand people, a shopping mall." And a, and a port on a river. How in the world do you make that happen? Well, we're the guys to talk to, and 
we figure out exactly what's possible and what's not. And again, those investors would say, we want to do this to make a certain part or some sort of, again, some sort of special economic zone. It's not just to build like a complex there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. A legally autonomous uh, real estate project. And again, the reason they would do that is just because the laws of that country wouldn't allow them to do what they want to do. Maybe to streamline, get take some of the bureaucracy out of whatever project they have. Or in many of the cases that we're actually working with, it's we, and I can't really talk about our clients in, in too specific terms, but let's just say right. we want to make the world's number one microchip manufacturing destination. So they go and they say, okay, what are all the laws that we would need to have in place to be the number one exporter? What are all of the problems, the regulatory hurdles that microchip manufacturers make? We'll find some country, we'll go to 10 countries, we'll find a country that will give us these concessions and we'll build this business park in their country. And so usually they're, they're looking for industries and they're trying to be the number one in the world in their specific industry. And they're trying to find out what type of rules and regulations they'd need to do that and how to get there. Excellent. Excellent. Well, what I'll do, Thibaut, is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and I'll put a link to your company and I'll put a link to that open, what do you call it? Open? Open zone map. Open zone map. I'll put a link to all those in the show notes. And uh, so if you're interested and you can follow up with Thibaut on this. And by the way, spell your spell your first name there. T-H-I-B-A-U-L-T. It's a French name. And you just go, but it's a French name, but it's just Thibaut, right? Just Thibaut, just Thibaut. <laughs> All right. Comes from the medieval name Theobald. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Thibaut, for being on my podcast. Really appreciate it. I uh, I think this is such an important topic. And again, it's one of those foundational things that we're we're all part of, but we don't recognize we're part of it. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.